Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Cast Rock. He is risen. Amen. How many were there at sunrise service? All right. The rest of you were slackers. That's all right. That's all good. God loves slackers. He does. He died for you as well. It was great. Um, wanted to let you know the, the, the weather was amazing. It's probably the nicest one that we've ever had. I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you missed it. I'm just saying. I was very blessed. It was one of the few times I got a chance to teach early morning and not be freezing. And so that was absolutely wonderful. Um, If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll put a Bible in your hand so you can follow along as we will be bouncing all over the place in God's Word here this morning. This is the weekend that you hear a lot, He is risen, and people respond, He is risen indeed. And the Greek word risen here is egairo, and it means to arouse from sleep, to awake, to arouse from the sleep of death. To recall the dead to life. Praise God. Praise God. We're going to read here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why don't you head over there? This is a declaration by Paul. Paul says some pretty profound things here. Starting in verse 12. Paul tells us this, he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. And so Paul's saying that he himself, as well as the other apostles and those who are believers in Jesus, have been testifying of the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And if he has not, he's saying that he and everybody else are false witnesses. It says, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, well, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all the men the most pitiable. But Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And since by man, meaning Adam, came death... By man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For in, Adam's, for in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Praise God. Praise God. So, in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's why we have his name here. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that has been set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is who we look to. He is the author and finisher of our faith. Jesus endured the brutality of the scourging, the crown of thorns, the cross, Because he knew of the joy that was set before him. What was the joy? It wasn't the cross. It wasn't the brutality. 
It was Jesus knowing what the cross would accomplish. It would accomplish the penalty of sin being paid in full. People receiving the work that he does on the cross are now able to cross over into right relationship with God in order to have fellowship with the Father for all eternity. Knowing this brought Jesus great joy. The joy of seeing all of you here this morning. Now we had left Jesus in our story on Friday, being Good Friday, where he hung upon the cross. And as he gave up his spirit, before he did that, he says, to telestai, it is finished. It's a Greek word. Could be teleo, could be tetelestai. They both mean the same thing. It is a cry of victory. It means paid in full. It means it's been accomplished. It means to bring to a close, to make an end of. All that was required for the penalty of sin has been paid. It is finished. It doesn't say to be continued. If you think you have to add more to it than what Jesus did, then it wasn't finished. And Jesus didn't accomplish what he needed to accomplish on the cross. But he did. He did it all. It was with his blood. And nothing needs to be added to it. Jesus' final word is a cry of victory. It is finished. And he accomplished everything the Father sent him to do. Before he cried out, it is finished, a very awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father laid upon God the Son all the guilt and the wrath our sin deserved, and he bore it upon himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God for us. Jesus being sin for us, meaning sin offering, meaning sin offering for us. Jesus being the perfect sinless sacrifice, took the punishment for sin away once for all. Death could not hold Jesus because he was perfect. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The very first sermon that was given is on the day of Pentecost. Peter, preaching to the crowd, says this in verse 22 of chapter 2. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter is saying, look, I don't need to explain it to you. You know very well that this Jesus of Nazareth did signs, and he did wonders, and he did miracles, and there are many who can attest to that. Many are here today, he is saying, that Jesus did those miracles too, blind being able to see. Lame being able to walk. People who are demon-possessed no longer demon-possessed. He says, they're among you. You know of this. He goes on and says, in him, in him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Death could not hold Jesus because he was perfect. He was sinless. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. He didn't sin, so death could not hold him. 
In Colossians 2.13, it says, And you, meaning all of us, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, Jesus, has made alive together with him, having forgiven your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way. How? Nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Satan actually believed that he was the one in control. He was the one that was controlling Judas. He was the one that was controlling the uh, soldiers that went and arrested Jesus. He was the one that was controlling Caiaphas. He was the one that was controlling Pilate. He was the one, he really thought he was in control. And he was railroading Jesus to be able to kill him and crucify him and take him for himself. Because Satan is the one that had power over death. And Hades or Sheol. But Jesus was always in control. It was Jesus that all of a sudden as he sees Judas leading a band of troops to come get him on the Mount of Olives. That when Peter goes forth with that sword to try and, you know, stop what was going on, what is it that Jesus did? He goes, Peter, don't you get it? Don't you understand I can stop this at any time. I could pray to the Father and he will send me 12 legions of angels. I can stop this at any time. Jesus is the one that's in control. We saw that on Friday, you know. When they come to him and say, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am. And what happened? They all fell down. That's pretty powerful. He says the statement, I am, because that is the exact same statement that God himself defines himself as being when Moses says, if I go to the children of Israel and say, who is the God that sent you? What do I say? And he says, I am sent you. Jesus was saying, he is God. I am. And by saying that, everybody fell. And the Greek word is pepto there. And it means drawing back, but it means falling forward, prostrate. All these Roman soldiers and Judas, I am, boom, on the ground. And then they get up. And they're probably thinking, what just happened? And they continue to arrest him. What? Talk about being blind and veiled to actually what's going on before them. Jesus was in control the whole time. He allowed for himself to be scourged. He allowed for himself to have a crown of thorns be put on him. Pilate looks at him and says, don't you understand? I have the power to release you or to crucify you. What did Jesus say? You would have no power at all if it was not first given to you from above. Well, guess what? Jesus is from above. That means Jesus is allowing that as well. Amazing. And when he was speaking to Pilate, he had already been scourged. Crown of thorns were on his head. Blood is just pouring down his face. His back ripped open as he's having this conversation, looking at him and saying, you'd have no power at all if it wasn't for my father and myself. He allowed for all this to happen. Jesus is in control of this whole thing. He's in control. He allows himself to be crucified. He's the one that, uh, that allows for the sin of the world, the wrath of, the, uh, uh, of God to come upon him. 
And he is nailing every person's sin upon the cross. And as he does that and pays for the sin of mankind, he has now disarmed Satan and all his minions. The only grip Satan has upon a person is his or her sin. But if the sin has been washed away by the blood of Jesus, then Satan has nothing upon which to hold that person. Jesus had victory over Satan on the cross. Satan thought he could take Jesus' soul after he died, but since Jesus never sinned, Satan had no authority over him. Thus, instead, the keys of death that once belonged to Satan have now been transferred to Jesus. This is why we read in Revelation 1.18, Jesus says this, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. For that, that belonged to Satan. But now Jesus has them. Jesus has them. The Hebrew author makes this very, very clear in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He destroyed him on the cross. He destroyed him. And Satan is a defeated foe. And that makes him angry. Because he's not in control anymore. Jesus is in control. Jesus' sacrifice paid it all. Destroyed the devil who had power over death. And he has power no longer. Jesus now has the power over death. Now all who receive what Jesus did for them on the cross have access to heaven through the blood of Jesus, through his work on the cross. I want you to go over here to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. It's here we read something very interesting. In verse 45... We're told as Jesus is hanging on the cross. It says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there is darkness over the land. So we know that from the third hour to the ninth hour, Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. So three hours into it, all of a sudden everything turns pitch black. Everything becomes dark. As he hangs there for the next three hours. Now the reason I bring this up is because in the book of Amos, the prophet Amos says this says, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, like in lamentations, as you mourn for someone. And all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist, baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son, and its end like the bitter day. Now, the judgment that's being spoken of here, I believe, is speaking of the seven-year tribulation period. The reason why I bring it up is because it equates darkness over the land with a sense of mourning that needs to take place. And like it says there, like someone who mourns over the death of his son. Well, what is going on here on the cross? Darkness, like a father mourning for his son, his only son. And so... A great morning is taking place here. Darkness falls for three hours as Jesus is God's son and he's dying there on the cross. Now go over here to verse 51 of Matthew 27. Okay. 
verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks split. So at the moment that he gives up his spirit, after it's been dark for three hours, we have an earthquake. Something, something's going on. And then we read something incredibly creepy. And the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, coming out of the graves after his resurrection. And they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What? The walking dead isn't so far off. (laughs) But notice it says that happens after the resurrection. Now, the rocks were broken over, the graves were open, but those bodies, those those souls in, in their now bodies doesn't happen till after the resurrection. Why? Because Jesus has to be resurrected in bodily form first. He's the first fruits. And so it doesn't say like the minute after that happened. It could have been the day after that happened. We don't know exactly when it happened, but it happened after the resurrection. And, and think about it. There's a proclamation going out. He's, he's risen. We've seen Jesus. Yeah, well, I've seen Uncle Al, <laughs> you know. And I got to tell you, he doesn't look so great, you know. And so, you know, other people are being and going, well, what do you think they're saying? They're also proclaiming Jesus. They have to be. What are they going into the city for? They're talking to loved ones. They're letting them know that that Jesus that died on the cross, he is God's son. A testimony is going on. But that doesn't happen until after the resurrection. It's interesting because verses 52 and 53 is kind of a, a summary of events. And then in verse 54, as we continue, it should go from verse 51 to 54. There's a little addendum there saying, and by the way, this also happens. And then we're given absolutely no other commentary after that. Which I kind of like because it allows for my imagination to just go wild with stuff like that, you know. And so it really is, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. So when the centurion, verse 54, and those with him were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake, the things that happened, they feared greatly, saying, Rutro, <laughs> truly this was the Son of God. Wow. Something, something's happening here. But first, I'm going to look at this. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God is a personal God. He's a loving Father who feels deeply and grieves greatly when we sin. Why? Because of the devastating effect that sin has on our lives. He sees the sorrow. He sees the suffering, the problems, and the pain that sin brings us. Sin is not bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's, well, it's just bad. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is a gift, but sin is so serious, it requires death. We see this in Leviticus 17, where God declares that there could be no removal of sin, no covering of sin without the shedding of blood. And it has to be innocent blood. And there are no innocent uh, blood of men. Or women. That's why they were always animals. Okay. 
They're, they, they, they don't deserve to die because of our sin. And that's why they were used in the way of a covering. And it was always temporary until a human person, a person who's human, but also God, would be able to live a perfect life and sacrifice himself in order to take care of the sin problem that man has. Every year on the Day of Atonement, it's called Yom Kippur, one day of the year. The high priest would go through a great ceremonial cleansing before robing himself. He would take the blood of bulls and goats and lambs which had been sacrificed in the altar in the courtyard. He would walk into the holy place where only priests are allowed to go. And then beyond the holy place was a holy of holies that's separated by a veil. This veil was not a small little bed sheet, okay? It was a massive veil. And this doesn't even do it justice because it's supposed to be 60 feet tall. I would say, according to this right here, it's probably only like about 35 or so. You know, so it, was, it went up a lot higher than that and it was a lot uh, wider as well. It was 60 feet tall. It was 30 feet wide. It was 10 inches thick. Made of 72 braids, which each consisting of 24 cords. The veil was so heavy, it took dozens of priests to hang it. This is what tore from top to bottom. It wasn't just a small little bed sheet being, you know, hung up there. It was a huge veil. And it veiled the Holy of Holies, a room on the other side. So here we have the holy place right here where priests can come in. But this is the high priest right here. And he is the only one that's allowed to go on the other side one day a year. And that's the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant was the the presence of God. And so the high priest could only go into the presence of God once a year. On Yom Kippur, in this room of Holy of Holies, contained the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid to the Ark was called the Mercy Seat. And filling the Holy of Holies was that presence of God. Of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of God. And on the day of atonement, the high priest went from the altar in the courtyard of the temple into the holy place. And then through the veil into the holy of holies to sprinkle the blood, the sacrifice, in order to intercede on behalf of the people. The high priest represented the people to God. And the sacrifice of the blood sprinkling on the Ark of the Covenant represented the need for atonement for the sins of the people. When the priests came out of the Holy of Holies and out of the holy place for all the people to see, they would know that their sins had been atoned for that year, had been forgiven, had been temporarily covered for that year. Now, only, again, the high priest was the only one that could go back there. All the other priests could not. So, what do you think all the other priests are thinking when all of a sudden that veil tears in two. And now they're able to look into the Holy of Holies for the very first time. Thus representing that the way into God's presence is now available to anyone through the sacrifice of the Son. The veil was torn, light shone through where there was once darkness. It meant an exclusion of men. Now they're welcome. All the world was now brought inside. All souls are made now priests through what Jesus did for them on the cross. This is why Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father 
except through me. You can now enter into the presence of the Father through the Son, but that's the only way you can do it. And so this veil was torn in two, making that final blood sacrifice for the sin now says you can have fellowship with God. The veil to the Jew always spoke of the hem of God's garment. When a Jewish man lost his son, if his son died, he would rend or tear the hem of his garment to signify his son is dead. Thus the veil being torn also was testimony that God's son has died. And that happened the moment that Jesus says to Telestai, I now commit my spirit into your hands. And he gave up his spirit. That's when that happened. That's when that happened. Verse 54. So when the centurion, those with him, regarding Jesus, saw, felt this earthquake, the things that had happened, they greatly feared. You bet they did. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have that same account. Again, in Matthew, truly, this was the Son of God. In Mark, it says, truly, this man was the Son of God. In Luke, it says, certainly, this was a righteous man. This centurion had witnessed many things. Had witnessed the scourging of Jesus. He had witnessed the driving of the crown of thorns upon his head. Had witnessed them ripping the beard out of his face. The pummeling with their fists. So in Isaiah it says he was even unrecognizable as a man. How badly do you have to be brutalized? That they look at your face and go, I I don't even know if that's a man. He witnessed all of that. He also witnessed Jesus telling the daughters of Jerusalem not to weep for him, but for themselves. He also witnessed Jesus being nailed to the cross. Hearing him utter the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he also witnessed Jesus promising one of the thieves that has been crucified next to him that today he would be with him in paradise. Centurion witnessed the darkness that had come upon the land. He felt the earthquake. He heard and saw the victorious claim of Jesus. It is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He heard all of that. He saw all that. He testifies he was there for that. And he was able to declare after witnessing all of that, truly this was the Son of God. The declaration this centurion tells me is that, is that Jesus is not just for the Jews. He's for the Gentiles as well. You might recall when Jesus was first born that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple to give an offering. And when they got there, there's a man by the name of Simeon. And he had been waiting to be able to see the Messiah. And he says in Luke chapter 2 verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. It was a centurion, a Gentile, who glorifies God. That light was brought to him. He saw it. On Good Friday, Jesus has been crucified. He's now buried. He cried out to Telestai, it is finished. Payment for the sin of mankind has been paid in full. And we left off with this verse in 2 Corinthians 
And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. There's two other scriptures that really drives this point even further. Because I left off on Friday just saying, notice what it says. In other words, because Jesus died for you, how could you not now live for him? And here's two other scriptures that drives it even deeper. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. You don't belong to yourself. You've been purchased. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Peter says it this way. Chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We don't belong to ourselves. We've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, which is the highest commodity in the whole universe. Is Christ's blood. That's how you were purchased. Jesus on the cross. Dying for our sin. And if he died. And gave his life. And purchased your life with his blood. How much more. Should we now live. For him. Paul could have argued. Then since God is the one who created you. That's why you should serve him. He created you. You're his creation. Of course you should serve him. God, Paul could also argue that because God holds your very breath in his hands, and at any moment, he could take it away. That should be a reason in which to serve God and to live for him. But Paul sees the very best reason... We should not participate in sin, not live for ourselves, but to live for him is because of what he did for us. He bought us with his blood, the precious blood of Christ. This is why Paul would go on to say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He uses this logic for why he lives for Christ. Because he loved me and gave himself for me. He purchased me with his own blood. That's why Paul does it. That's why Paul does it. And so Paul uses this to convince us of our duty. And it should be a delight in our service to him. Paul's saying you're bought at a price. That price is the precious blood of Christ. He's saying, remember the cross. Remember the scourging. Remember, he was your substitute. How he bared his back and the cat of nine tails as his back was ripped open. The beatings, the ripping of the beard from his face, the placing of the thorns upon his head, being nailed to a wooden cross, having to hang there for six hours. He did that for us. He did that for you. And that's why we are not our own. We belong to him, to Jesus, the Christ, God himself. I do not think that the exorbitant price of Christ's blood was shed so I could live however I want to. 
I don't think Jesus died for my sin so I could be selfish and do whatever I want to. I don't think that's the case. And I hope that's not your attitude here. I hope you can really say I'm redeemed. I am free now to live for him. In Mark chapter 16, it says here in verse 1, go to Mark 16, verse 1. Here we get to see the empty tomb. Mark 16, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they may come and anoint him. So... Their thought is, the women's thought was that, look, you know, the Sabbath is over now. Um, let's go back uh, to where he was buried and let's continue to anoint his body. And it was, a, it was a way to show respect and honor. And the more spices that you put on a body, the more you honor and respected. Kings would have uh, 50 pounds worth of spices put upon their body. Joseph of Arimathea, we're told, it was more like 75 pounds that he put upon Jesus' body. And now the women are coming to put even more. Wow. And yet as they leave, they're not even thinking about, well, there's a massive stone in front. How, how are we going to remove that? Their love, their dedication for Jesus doesn't even see that obstacle. So it says, very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? As they come to that that, that understanding, they still keep going. They don't stop going, oh, you're right, we're not going to be able to do this and turn around. They kept going, they're just going, I wonder who, you know, how how is this going to happen? We want to do this, but, but how? Verse four, but when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, for it was a very large stone. In Matthew's account, we're told an angel rolled the stone away. Not so Jesus could get out, okay? But so we could look in and see that it's empty. Verse 5, in entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe. The word white there in the Greek is pronounced Clorox. It's weird. I, I just found that interesting. That's why it was so white. Man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. That's why the stones rolled, right? So you could see. He's not here. Look for yourself. He is risen. There's an excitement today that we get to use these words He is risen. Now see the place they laid him. I mean, look, he's not there. It's a bodily resurrection. It's not a spiritual resurrection. It's a bodily resurrection. Jesus is going to go on and show himself for the next 40 days. Okay? And he's always going to be asking his disciples, go ahead, put your finger here in my hole, the holes in my hand. You know, how about in my side? Hey, is there, is there any fish? Any honeycomb to eat? Anything like that? And he would eat in his presence to show it's a physical bodily resurrection resurrection his resurrection was bodily and so will ours be as well and so he goes on and says but go tell his disciples and peter that he's going before you into galilee there you will see him as he said to you i love this i love the fact that peter is singled out here 
I've mentioned this before. But I love the fact that he says, go tell the disciples, but that's not enough. He singles out Peter. Why does he single out Peter? Because Peter's the one that probably is feeling the worst. He denied the Lord three times after he even said, hey, even if the others deny you, I won't deny you. But he does. And he did it three times. He's probably feeling the worst. And by saying it, make sure you get Peter. Make sure that Peter hears this. Make sure Peter comes. Peter needs to understand God's not done with you yet. Peter probably thinks he's struck out in the bottom of the ninth, game over. Much like what happens with most Rockies games. But anyway, um, there's still time, Peter. There's still time, okay? And so Jesus still wants you, Peter. That's for someone here this morning. You really believe that you blew it. You're a believer. You received Christ, but you haven't been living like it. And you think you're a hypocrite. And you think you've betrayed him and there's no coming back. You're wrong. Jesus still wants you. He desires you. He still has a calling on your life. And you're just like Peter. And he's calling for you right now. He wants you. Come to him. There's something very interesting about this whole notion of the resurrection. In Job chapter 19 and verse 25, we read this. Job declares this. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Was written before Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. The reason I bring this up is because Job believed in a bodily resurrection before anything was written down about it. Somehow in Job's worship of God, it has been communicated to him by his father, no doubt, and his fathers before him, and the prophets who spoke for God before that. Oral tradition was handed down to him that there is a God in heaven, a God who created the heavens and the earth, and that there's going to be a bodily resurrection. And there will be a time when you're going to see God face to face. And Job tells us his Redeemer is God. The word redeemer is goel or gael. It means to redeem, to be the next of kin, and as such to buy back a relative's property. This word redeemer is used 18 times in the Old Testament. It's always in reference to God towards his people Israel. Interesting though, because Job is not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And yet he's a worshiper of the one true God, the God of creation. And Job claims that God is his redeemer. To every Jew reading the book of Job, they would understand this word redeemer, the goel, the kinsman redeemer is what this means. Although we do not have time for an in-depth Bible study of this right now, I just want to try and sum up for you the prophetic implications of this. In Leviticus 25, There are four things required of a kinsman redeemer. 
must be a kinsman, meaning a near relative. They must be free themselves. They must be able to pay the price. And they must be willing to pay the price. You see, when Israel was given the land, that gift was from God and it couldn't be handed back to God. He is the one who gave Israel the land. However, even though you could not give back the land to the giver, you could give it to someone else. You may give it over because of poverty. Thus, you can no longer benefit from the inheritance. Your heritage has been given away. However, you could buy it back for your heritage, your land for the same price you sold it. And if you could not do it, then a near relative, a kinsman redeemer could buy it back for you. Think about it. Adam and Eve have been given an inheritance of a place with God here on the earth in the garden. A place to where God is in the garden. A place to have fellowship with God. This was the inheritance of Adam and Eve. Only one condition. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, every day you chose to obey God, your inheritance stays intact. But the moment you choose to listen to the serpent... And disobey, you're going to lose your inheritance. You give away your inheritance. And what did it cost you? Innocent blood and death. What did God do in the garden? He killed innocent animals, leading to death. Banished Adam and Eve from his presence. Adam and Eve are now tainted with sin, are guilty, deserving of death. Adam and all his descendants after him, which include us. So man now has a problem. He has lost his inheritance. He cannot buy it back. Why? Because he sold it for his innocence. So then only a person who can buy it back has to pay so with his innocence. Well, since their dreamer must be a kinsman, a fellow human being without sin, innocent, would be the one that would have to pay it back. This is why God had to become man. This is why Jesus was fully man and fully God. This is why God had to become man. Do you see that? Do you get that? Somehow Job did. Somehow Job understood about his future kinsman and that that kinsman would have to be God. His nearest relative would have to be God himself. And God is going to stand upon the earth, he says. For I know that my Redeemer lives, he says, and he shall stand at last on the earth. God will stand upon the earth as his Redeemer. Who do you think that is? Jesus. Jesus. And Job knows he's going to die, and his body's going to undergo decay, and that his Redeemer is God, and that in his flesh his body that will undergo decay will in fact be resurrected to see God. Because he goes on and says, and after my skin is destroyed, decayed. This I know, that in my flesh I shall see God in my body. My Redeemer lives. He's going to stand upon the earth. I know my flesh is going to decay, but in that same flesh body, I'm going to see God. And then Job emphasizes he will see him, his Redeemer, God, and it will be in his resurrected body. And he can hardly wait. He says, whom I shall see for myself, my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Man, I can hardly wait. 
How awesome is this? As the human race has lost our inheritance, we need a redeemer. A kinsman redeemer has to be human to buy back for us that which was lost, the inheritance of of, of a right relationship with God, fellowship with God. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer because Jesus is God. And in the flesh, he stood upon the earth and he purchased with his blood a way back for us to God. This gospel message about this resurrection, this bodily resurrection, that Jesus has risen from the dead, is stated time and time again in God's word because that is the gospel message. You have no gospel without the resurrection of Jesus. There's no good news if Jesus did not rise from the dead. But he did. And it's mentioned time and time again. Paul rarely preached to anyone without mentioning the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, here's the gospel, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Here's the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, Christ died according for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. And guess what? He was buried. But here's the good news. He rose again from the dead. Paul gave the same formula of saving faith in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says that if you confess through your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes in righteousness, and the mouth confession is made into salvation. The Bible speaks clearly about the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The different eyewitness accounts. The apostle John says, we beheld his glory, John 1.14, speaking of Jesus after the resurrection. The apostles all saw him, as Peter says, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses that we read earlier in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the very first sermon. Paul says, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. Paul is saying that the time that he is speaking, the time that he is writing this down, that some of those are still alive who saw him, and you can go ask them. Some have died since that time, are now de- you know, and now with Jesus, <clears throat> but others are still alive. Go check it out for yourself, he's saying. The apostle Paul himself claims to have seen Jesus. Then last of all, he was seen by me, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. So Paul affirms the resurrection account as well as the gospel writers. As a matter of fact, this theme of the resurrection is the foundation of the rest of the New Testament. Again, Acts 2, 22, as we just read, talks about him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands, crucified, put to death, whom God raised up. He was resurrected. Peter again preached on the resurrection in Acts chapter 4. 
He did it again in Acts chapter 5. He did it again in Acts chapter 10 when he came to Cornelius and his family. Stephen preached the resurrection of Christ in chapter 7 at his defense before the Sanhedrin. Paul preached the resurrection in chapter 9 all the way through chapter 28. The resurrection was the theme of Paul's message about Christ. When we come to the letters in the New Testament, all the epistles, we see this theme time and time again. We see in Romans chapter 1, very first here in, 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 uh, in order here in the New Testament of Paul saying this, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We see this theme of the resurrection all through the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Galatians 1, Ephesians 1, Philippians 3, Colossians 2, Thessalonians 1, 1 Peter 1, just to name a few. And then you go all the way to Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, Jesus speaking in the book of Revelation as it begins, and he says, I am he who lives, was dead, behold, I'm alive forevermore. It's all about the resurrection, We worship and serve a living God, not a dead one, not a dead one. The whole theme of the New Testament is about the resurrection of Jesus. This is the cornerstone of the foundation of our faith, and it's our hope today for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, again, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so Christ all shall be made alive. That is our hope today. He is risen. He is not dead. And he's at the right hand of the Father. Amen? Let's pray. 